Well, the older I get, the more I think about two things. There are two things that, that seem to be on my mind a lot. The first one is this. What's going to happen when I die? Now, I haven't lost my faith, so y'all who are worried about that, don't think I've lost my faith. I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus died on the cross, rose from the grave to pay for my sins. I have repented of my sins. I placed my faith and trust in Him. I believe that He is my Savior and Lord. I have a hope of eternal life. And yet at the same time, I struggle at times with questions. I struggle at times with issues. I, I have a tendency to ask those what-if questions. Questions like, what if everything that I have believed in is wrong? What if my faith is not a genuine faith? Now, my wife, Sherry, she never asked those questions. I, I mean, she just has this childlike faith, not me. I mean, I'm a skeptic, I'm a cynic, I'm a questioner, I'm a doubter. And, and so I ask those questions. And i got to tell you, I wish I didn't. But the older I get, the more I find myself asking those questions. How many of you in here occasionally ask those questions? Okay, at least some of you are honest. Okay. And so that's one of the things that I think about. The second thing I think about is this. When I die, is anybody going to care? I mean, is anybody going to mourn when I die? I mean, I've got a pretty good insurance policy on myself for my wife, and so she's going to be taken care of, and so is she going to mourn? <laughs> I've written up my will in such a way that, that my kids are going to be blessed. Or are they saying, how long is he going to live? <laughs> I mean, I ask those questions. Now, I know, I know that for most of us, we know that our, our, our spouse, hopefully, our kids, hopefully, are, are going to mourn when we die. But what about everybody else? I know most of us say things like this. Now, I don't want you to be sad when I die. I, I don't want you to mourn me when I die. That's a lie, isn't it? I mean, isn't it a lie? I mean, don't you want people to be sad? I mean, you don't want them to be real sad. You don't want them to have to take medication. But you want people to mourn your death. You want people to be sad when you're gone. You don't want them to throw a party and say, ding dong, the witch is dead. I mean, that's not what you want. You want people to be sad when you're gone. At least I, I do. I, I want people to be sad when I'm gone. Well, today, we're going to be looking at the eighth king of Judah. And so if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 21. The eighth king of Judah is Jehoram. He was the son of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a good king. He was a godly king. He followed the ways of the Lord. The Bible tells us that he was deeply committed. He was deeply devoted to the Lord. The tragedy is, his son Jehoram did not follow in his father's footsteps. His son Jehoram did not live like his daddy lived. And so this morning, we're going to kind of unpack Jehoram's story and, and see what we can learn. Now, let's begin with, with verse 1 of chapter 21. Follow along as I read. It says, when Jehoshaphat died, he was buried with his ancestors 
in the city of David. Then his son Jehoram became the next king. Jehoram's brothers, the, the other sons of Jehoshaphat, were Azariah, Jehiel, Zechariah, Azariahu, Michael, and Shephatiah. All these were the sons of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Their father had given each of them valuable gifts of silver, gold, and costly items, and also some of Judah's fortified towns. So, so Jehoshaphat gave each of his sons some towns to rule. He blessed them with, with gifts of inheritance, but he designated Jehoram as the next king because he was the oldest. But when Jehoram had become solidly established as king, he killed all of his brothers and some of the other leaders of Judah. Now let me remind you of something this morning. Last week we, we talked about Jehoshaphat and we discovered how Jehoshaphat made an alliance with Ahab. Ahab was the wickedest king in Israel's history. And as part of this alliance, he allowed his son Jehoram to marry Ahab's daughter. Now Ahab was a Baal worshiper. Ahab didn't worship the one true God. Ahab worshipped pagan gods, false gods. He worshipped idols. His family worshipped idols. And here is Jehoshaphat making an alliance with this pagan to the point that he gives his son in marriage to this pagan's daughter. Now I imagine. I imagine Jehoshaphat thought that this compromise could do some good. I imagine he said to himself, well, if, if I build this alliance with Ahab, if I compromise a little bit here, I'll have the opportunity to influence Ahab. I know Ahab worships Baal. I know Ahab is a pagan. But, but maybe I can be a positive influence on Ahab's life. Maybe as he sees me worship the one true God, maybe as we spend time together, he will see that the God I serve is the one true God. And maybe, just maybe, Ahab and his entire family will come to faith in the one true God. Maybe the entire nation of Israel will turn back to the one true God. Maybe the two kingdoms, Israel and Judah, will become one kingdom again. And maybe, maybe the entire nation will worship the one true God as one God again. That's probably what he said to himself. You see, what we often do when we compromise is we rationalize our decisions. We justify our decisions. We convince ourselves that good can come out of our bad decisions. That's what we do when we compromise our biblical values. We somehow rationalize that it's going to be okay. We convince ourselves that somehow, someway, good is going to come from our bad decisions. But listen. You need to understand that our compromises, however small we may think they are, can and most likely will lead to devastating consequences in our life and perhaps in the life of our kids. Now, I'm not going to go into specifics this morning. The Holy Spirit can do that in your life. But most likely, there are some of us here this morning who are compromising it may be something as simple and as small in your mind as commitment to church. I mean, back when I was a kid, I know that seemed light years ago, but back when I was a kid, I mean, we had church on Sunday morning and 
We had church on Sunday night, and we had church on Wednesday night, and then we had other activities on the free night. And, and I got to tell you, we were there pretty much every time the doors are open. Today, we have church on Sunday morning, and then we have prayer time on Wednesday night. And yet, it still seems like that, that more often than not, we have a difficult time even being here on Sunday morning. I mean, statistics reveal, this isn't me, this is just the statistics. Statistics reveal that if you're here once a month, you consider yourself a regular attender. That, that's 25%. Let me ask you a question. If you attended class at school 25% of the time, would you graduate? You wouldn't, would you? And so oftentimes what we do as parents is we compromise our beliefs, we compromise our values, and we justify it by convincing ourselves that we've got valid reasons for doing it. And yet what we need to understand is when we compromise our values, they can have devastating effects on our children. You see, what we end up neglecting as parents our children often ended up abandoning when they become adults. What we do in moderation as parents, our children many times end up doing in excess when they become adults. We need to understand that our compromises can have devastating consequences. I mean, look at Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat would have never thought that when he gave his son in marriage to Ahab's daughter, that Jehoram, this son, was going to end up putting to death the rest of Jehoshaphat's kids. Jehoshaphat lost his entire family because he compromised. But let's continue to read the story. Notice what it says. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem eight years. But Jehoram followed the example of the kings of Israel and was as wicked as King Ahab, for he had married one of Ahab's daughters. So Jehoram did what was evil in the Lord's sight, but the Lord did not want to destroy David's dynasty, for he had made a covenant with David and promised that his descendants would continue to rule, shining like a lamp forever. By the way, let me just say, God keeps his word. Aren't you glad? I am. I mean, when God says he will save us by faith, we're saved by faith. And I'm so thankful because i got to tell you, when I look at my life in the mirror, I don't think I deserve salvation. And I don't. But I'm not saved because I deserve it. I'm saved because of the grace and the mercy of God and my faith placed in what Jesus did on the cross. God is true to his word. During Jehoram's reign, the Edomites revolted against Judah and crowned their own king. So Jehoram went out with his full army and all his chariots. The Edomites surrounded him and his chariot commanders. But he went out at night and attacked them under the cover of darkness. Even so, Edom has been independent from Judah to this day. The town of Libna also revolted about that same time. All this happened because Jehoram had abandoned the Lord. Notice what that says. All this happened because Jehoram had abandoned the Lord, the God of his ancestors. He had built pagan shrines in the hill country of Judah and had led the people of Jerusalem and Judah to give themselves to pagan gods and to go astray. Now let me remind you, Jehoshaphat's dad, or Jehoram's dad, Jehoshaphat, was a godly man. 
And yet the Bible says here that Jehoram followed the example of the kings of Israel. He was as wicked as Ahab, the most wicked of the kings in Israel's history. Instead of following his father, he followed his father-in-law. He built pagan shrines and led his people to give themselves to these pagan gods. That word, give themselves, it literally means to become a whore. Now, we don't know from the context of this passage whether this means that, that they were involved in pagan sexual immorality or, or whether they just gave themselves over to follow pagan gods. Because the Bible says in, in many of the prophetic books that the people of Israel had committed adultery against God. They followed other gods. So we don't know which way this is to be interpreted, but either way, what we know is they abandoned God. They cheated on God. They quit following God. And because of that, God got upset with them. Now here was his father, who was a godly man, and yet he was a godless man. Here's what you need to know. Holiness is not hereditary. Did you hear me? Holiness is not hereditary. Parents don't think just because you love Jesus, your children are going to end up loving Jesus. And kids, listen to me. Don't think just because your parents love Jesus, you have your ticket stamped for heaven. You can't get into heaven on your parents' ticket. Everybody has to have their own ticket to get into heaven. You have to have a personal relationship with Jesus. You have to choose Jesus on your own. Holiness is not hereditary. But parents, listen to me for just a second. If you want your children to love the God that you love, you need to be intentional about what you do. Jehoshaphat loved the Lord God. The Bible makes it clear as we look at Jehoshaphat's life that he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. He was deeply committed to the Lord. He followed the Lord's ways. This was a man that was serious about his faith, but somehow... Some way, there was a disconnect when it came to sharing that faith with his kids. I don't know how, but he had a disconnect. He sent people out throughout the land to share the word of God in the land, but in his own home, he missed it. Listen very carefully. If you think you're doing what you need to do because you bring your kids to church, because you bring them to student ministry, or you bring them to Awana, boy, are you deceived. You have to be intentional about teaching and training your kids because if you don't, you're going to lose them because I'm telling you, the world is going all out to get your kids. And so you need to be intentional in what you do. Now let's continue to read. Notice what it says. Then Elijah the prophet wrote Jehoram this letter. This is what the Lord, the God of your ancestor David says. You have not followed the good example of your father Jehoshaphat or your grandfather King Asa of Judah. Instead, you have been as evil as the kings of Israel. You have led the people of Jerusalem and Judah to worship idols just as King Ahab did in Israel. And you have even killed your own brothers, men who were much better than you. 
So now the Lord is about to strike you, your people, your children, your wives, and all that is yours with a heavy blow. You yourself will suffer with a severe intestinal disease that will get worse each day until your bowels come out. Let's stop there. Ugh. <laughs> Can we just say a collective, uh, uh. I mean, of all the ways to die, uh. I mean, a severe intestinal disease that got worse and worse and worse until his bowels came out. Don't picture that. Then the Lord stirred up the Philistines and the Arabs who lived near the Ethiopians to attack Jehoram. They marched against Judah, broke down his defenses, carried away everything of value in the royal palace, including the king's sons and his wives. Only his youngest son, Ahaziah, was spared. After all this, the Lord struck Jehoram with a severe intestinal disease. The disease grew worse and worse, and at the end of two years, it caused his bowels to come out. And he died in agony. His people did not build a great funeral fire to honor him as they had done for his ancestors. And so Elijah, who was this great prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel, this great prophet who stood on Mount Carmel and fought against 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, this prophet wrote Jehoram a letter on behalf of God. And it wasn't an encouraging letter. The letter basically said, Jehoram, God's ticked. And God is about to strike you with a heavy blow. I'm going to send an army against your people and all of your children except your youngest. And all of your wives are going to be taken off into captivity. And then I'm going to strike you with this intestinal disease. And you're going to be in agony for two years. And then you're going to die as your bowels come out. Let me tell you what. Let me tell you what. Listen to me. You can say what you want to about the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament. The God of the Bible is the God of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. Here's what you need to understand. God takes serious his relationship with you. And God expects you to take serious his relationship or your relationship with him. And so here's Jehoram. He loses his family. He loses his health. He loses his life. He dies in agony. And you think to yourself, it can't get any worse than that. But it does. Notice the next verse. Jehoram was 32 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem eight years. No one was sorry when he died. They buried him in the city of David, but not in the royal cemetery. No one was sorry when he died. When, when I read that for the very first time, probably five months ago, as, as God laid this series on my heart, and I began to study this passage, I just couldn't get that phrase off my mind. No one was sorry that he died. And I began to ask, is anybody going to be sorry when I die? Is anybody going to be sorry when you die? Is anybody going to be sorry when you die? I mean, really, sorry. N not the people that you pay their bills. Nobody's there to pay the bill anymore. No, is anybody going to really be sorry when you die? And, and then I begin to ask the question, how do we need to live so that people will be sorry when we die? Because I think, all of us want to live that way, right? I mean, we can say, don't be sorry when I die. Have a party. 
Well, there's certain kinds of parties we don't want them to have. We want them to mourn. We want them to be sad. We want the world to, to wish we were still here. So how do we live if we want people to mourn us when we're gone? Well, here's the bottom line. Here's what I know beyond a shadow of a doubt. If I want to live in such a way that people are going to mourn when I die, I have to live for others and not myself. Did you hear me? If I want to live in such a way that people are going to be sad when I go, I've got to live for others and not for myself. I've got to live in such a way that I make people feel better and I make people better because of my life. Did you hear that? I think both of those are important. If I want people to mourn when I'm gone, I've got to live in such a way that people feel better when they're around me. And people are better because of me. Did you get that? And, and so how, how can I live in such a way that people feel better when they're around me and they are better because of me? As I began to think about this, I, I came up with several things I want to share with you and for the remaining part of our time, I want to just unpack these two for you, and then we're going to close. First of all, if you want people to mourn you when you're gone, you need to love passionately. You love passionately. Jesus said it this way when he was asked, what's the greatest, the most important commandment of all? He said, this is it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others with every ounce of your being the apostle paul said this he said these three things will last forever faith hope and love but the greatest of these is love you see there's only one thing that is going to outlast you and that's the love that you give there's only one thing that can't be taken from you and that's the love that you give you need to love people passionately if you want to be mourned when you're gone. Understand it's not enough just to love. We need to love passionately. Everybody will say they love, but when we love passionately, we love with every fiber of our being. To love passionately means we put effort and energy into it. To love passionately means we put our emotions into it. Passionate love is both an emotional thing and an energetic thing. You know, you'll hear people say that love isn't an emotion. Yes, it is. But it's not just an emotion. Did you hear me? I don't want emotionless love. I want emotional love. I don't want just emotional love. I want energetic love. You see, we don't love with just words. We love with deeds. We love with our actions we love with our doing you see loving passionately is is finding everyone's love language and then finding ways to legitimately speak that language to them whoever they are so we find everyone's love language the people that we come in contact with the people that we meet on the street we we try to determine how can I say I love you we love passionately. I've never heard of anyone who abandoned a relationship because they were loved too much. I mean, I've never had anyone come into my office for counseling. 
sit down and I say, well, tell me what's wrong. They say, well, I'm, I'm leaving my spouse. I go, why? Well, they just love me too much. I'm telling you, they just shower me with love. They just, they just passionately love me. I just, it's just too much for me. I can't handle it. I've never had anyone come to me and say that. You love passionately. And we don't just love those who are close to us. We love everyone from the nearest and dearest to the meanest and the worst. We love everyone. That's what Jesus said. He said you love your enemies. You bless those that curse you. You love everyone. And love means that I am going to seek out the best in people even when they are seeking out the worst for me. But here's the key. If you want to love passionately, you don't wait until you feel like it, you do it. And then the feelings come. I mean, some of us, we sit back and go, I just don't feel like doing that. Well, big deal. Do it anyway. I mean, you're going to go home. Some of you men and you're, you're, ladies, let's just, I'm going to talk about you for a minute. I know none of you, this applies to none of you. But you know, ladies can be jerks just like men can. Would you agree with that? Would you agree with that? I mean, they're usually not, but ladies can be jerks too. And so, you know, your, your wife's a jerk, and she's having a tough week, and, you know, it's just been bad. And, and so you, you come home, and the kitchen's an absolute wreck, and, and you're sitting there going, can't believe she can't clean this up. I'm going to tell her when she gets home about this. Well, that's one way to handle it, isn't it? The other way is to go in there and, and go, the kitchen's a wreck. I'm going to clean it up for her. I'm going to wash the dishes. I'm going to put the stuff away. Doggone it, I'm going to order cookout or takeout. You can order cookout, but you won't enjoy it. <laughs> if anybody owns cookout, I'm just joking. Okay? I, I mean, you're going you know, to do that. And you're saying, well, I don't feel like doing that. She's not treating me nice. Well, so? Treat her nice. You see, you love even when people aren't showing you love. Love passionately. Second, laugh a lot. Have fun. Be happy. I mean, who wants to be around a grumpy, grouchy sourpuss? I mean, I've never heard people say, hey, let's go over to Grumpy's house tonight. I mean, you don't want to be around whining people who complain and whimper all the time, do you? Well, let's go over and see what's wrong with so-and-so today. No, something's going to be wrong. No, you want to be around fun, happy, joyful people. And here's what I know. We can't always change our circumstances, but we can change our attitude. We can choose joy. I can choose to have joy regardless of what's going on in my life. I can choose happiness. I can determine whether I am going to laugh at the situations that the world puts before me or I'm going to cry about them. I can make that choice. And i got to tell you, for me, for me, I have chosen to laugh at the situations that the world puts before me. I'm not going to sit there and cry about them and moan over them because if I can't do anything about it, why am I going to let that destroy my life? I'm not. I'm going to roll with the punches, trust God, and have joy in the journey. So love passionately. Laugh a lot. Third, chill out. 
Just chill out. I've got a little book on my shelf at home. The title is Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. And, and then the subtitle is Everything is Small Stuff. And that's true, isn't it? I mean, in the scheme of things, isn't pretty much everything small stuff? Have you ever heard anyone say to you, just relax? You ever heard anyone say that? Just relax. Take a chill pill. The problem is, the problem is some of us can be sitting on the beach in a chair doing nothing and yet, we're going a mile a minute on the inside. Have you met people like that? I mean, they're just wound tight. I mean, their clock's still going like this even when they're sleeping. And here's what I've understood about people like that. When they're always wound tight like that, the way they respond to you is going to be affected by that. So we just chill out. You can't control your circumstances all the time, but you can control how you respond to the circumstances. And here's what I know. I, I know that when our world is falling apart and, and things aren't going the way that we want them to go and we're in a crisis, most of us aren't going to look for the person who is panicked. We're going to look for the person who is calm, aren't we? Because we sit back, you know, if the plane is going down and someone's sitting there calm, we're going to go, they know something I don't know. They may know where the parachutes are. They may know how to fly this plane and they're about to go up there. I don't know, but if they're not panicked, I want to be with them. So chill out. Just chill out. Fourth, cut people some slack. Have patience with people. When you learn to chill out, you will find yourself losing your cool less often with other people. Understand each of us are at different places in our journey. We want kids to act like adults. We want beginners to act like experts. We want lost people to act like saved people. And that's just not fair, is it? It's not fair. I mean, when, when I, I had kids, I wanted my kids to act older than they were. And now that I've got grandkids, I realize that's just not, that's not possible. I mean, kids are going to be kids, and so we just learn to roll with the punches. I mean, and be patient with people, because people are at different places in their journey. People are at different places in their journey as far as maturity is concerned. People are at different places in their journey as far as spirituality is concerned. And we're either going to be impatient and just get all frustrated and fed up, or we're just going to cut people some slack. And just let God have the time he needs to work in their life. Fifth, treat other people the way you want to be treated. That's what Jesus said. Be good, be kind, be generous. Yesterday, my, my wife was in Walmart, and she ended up being in line behind a lady that um, had a buggy full of, of groceries, and she had three small kids with her. And, um, and she went, and she put her card into the, the um, card reader, and it declined. And she said, I know I've got money in there. And the lady said, we've been having some problems with our, our readers. Just you know, put it in again. The lady put it in again. It declined. You could tell she was beginning to get a little panicked. Here she was, had this, you know, lots of food there, back in the buggies, in bags, three kids waiting there. And her car has been declined twice. She put her car back in and, and it declined again. My wife reached up to where she was and said, hey, let me, let me try my card. 
And the woman said, well, you can't do that. She said, sure I can. She put her card in and, and it accepted. Well, she had a buggy full of food, over $150 of food. And so when it accepted, my wife said, there you go. The lady just started bawling. And Sherry talked to her, and they talked as they were going out. And Sherry found out that this woman with three small kids, her husband left her last week. He called her yesterday from another state and said, I put some, I'll put some money in the account tomorrow so that you can get some food. Obviously, he didn't. Don't you hope that if you're ever in a situation like that, the person behind you will show you some grace and some mercy and some love? Tragically, here's what we often do. We're there and we've got our whatever it is and we're looking and the car's declined and we go, oh my. It's declined and we look at our watch and we go, it's declined again and we sit back and say, goodness, would somebody just get her out of the way? I, I mean, probably she's using her money on drugs or something like that. I mean, isn't that the way we respond oftentimes? When what we need to do is treat people the way we want to be treated. Now, I think about going to restaurants, and my wife and I are at a stage where we eat out a lot now. It's cheaper. My wife's forgotten how to cook. She's not in this service, I can say that. <laughs> And so we go out to eat a lot, and, and so I, I, I'm an observer of people, so I watch people. And so have you ever been in a restaurant and you notice that customer? You know who I'm talking about? I mean, they complain about everything. I mean, you pick up on it almost immediately. You know, excuse me, I need some more ice. Excuse me, my coffee isn't hot enough. Excuse me, we've been waiting on our food for five minutes now. Excuse me, I ordered my steak medium, and this is, this is medium well. You know, that kind of person. And understand, I'm not telling you you don't have a right, I guess, to, to talk to somebody when you don't get the service that you think you deserve. But in my life, I've come to just be full of grace in that. And the reason is, I sit back and think, what if that was my Son, what if that was my daughter waiting on the table? What if, what if that was my daughter and she was a single mom trying to make ends meet? I mean, so what if I have to wait an hour for food? So what if my steak's a little cold? So what if my tea's a little warm? So what? In the scheme of things, what does it really, really matter Why don't we treat people the way that we wish people would treat us? I mean, if we do that, I think it would change the way people would react when we're gone. Six, be true to our word. Do what you say. Fulfill your vows. Be trustworthy. If you say you're going to do something, do it. Seven, calm down. Solomon said it this way. He said a gentle word turns away wrath. Understand gentleness isn't weakness. 
Gentleness is power that is controlled. Gentleness is choosing to throw water on a fire rather than gasoline when you've got both at your disposal. A gentle answer turns away wrath. And then eight, think before you act. Control your impulses. Now, here's what I believe. When we live this way and we do it strategically and systematically, we do it regularly, it becomes a habit. People will mourn us when we're gone. Now, here's what it says in the Bible in Galatians 5. Notice what it says here. It says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In other words, if I I want to live in such a way that people are going to mourn me when I'm gone, all I need to do is allow the fruit of the Holy Spirit to flow through my life. And, And the truth of the matter is, The fruit of the Spirit is just the characteristics of the Spirit. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to live in us, when we are saved, when we are born again, His characteristics come with Him. And because He is living in our life, all of a sudden these characteristics begin to live in us. And sooner or later, they will begin to flow out of us. And as they flow out of us, We will be living in a way where people will go, man, I miss him. Boy, I wish they were still here. I sure did love them. They made an impact on my life. And and that's what I want. I'm just going to be honest. That's what I want. When I'm dead and gone, I, I I want there to be an emptiness. I don't want to know that as I lived, I just took up space. I want to know that I made a difference in people's lives. And to be honest with you, being honest, I've come to realize that it's easy to get so busy and get so caught up in doing life that we, we don't take the time to allow the Spirit's characteristics to flow through us. I mean, I, I probably love passionately less than I do. I don't laugh and exude joy near as much as I should. I need to chill out and let the peace of God that passes all understanding guard my heart and mind. I need to cut people slack and be patient with them as God's working in their life. And on and on and on. And as I do these things, I'll be living in such a way that people are better. People feel better about themselves because my life is intersected with their life. And I think that's what we all want. So what about it? Will you live that way? That's what God wants. And I'm here to tell you that's the way that you can live in a way that people will mourn you when you're gone. Now here's the key. You're never going to be able to do that apart from the Holy Spirit living in you. And the Holy Spirit's not going to live in you until you surrender your life to Jesus. 
And when you surrender your life to Jesus, you get to that point where his spirit can begin to work in your life. And so if you're here and you don't know Jesus, that's the first step you need to take. It's the step you need to take right now. So I want you to bow your head with me. I want you to close your eyes with me. With your head bowed, with your eyes closed. If you're here and you haven't given your heart and life to Jesus, I want to encourage you right here, right now, to pray this prayer to him with all your heart. Dear God, I come to you this morning humbly asking you to forgive me for all my sins. I am so sorry that I've disobeyed you, that I've rebelled against you. I know you love me. I believe you died on the cross for my sins. I believe you rose from the grave defeating sin and death. And right here, right now, in this moment, I'm asking you to come into my life and take control. Fill me with your spirit. From this moment on, Jesus, I want to live for you. Thank you, Jesus, for hearing my prayer. Thank you for saving me.